Our passage this morning is a tricky one to choose songs for. Not many people write a lot of songs about 1 Corinthians chapter 8. And so to choose songs that relate, I think you've done very well this morning, Eva, uh, when we talk about surrendering all. And that last song we spoke about uh, how we're living for the glory of the risen King. Those are themes that will come through this morning. If you're visiting with us and didn't get a copy of our notes as you came in, please put your hand up. Someone will come give you a copy of our notes so you can follow along and see what we're talking about this morning. I'm the youngest of three. I've got an older sister and then my brother and then myself. I'm three years younger than my brother, nearly three years younger. And when we would wrestle as kids, I would always lose because I was the weaker brother. I was smaller. And so whatever, whenever we would wrestle, he would win. Whenever we would fight, he would win. Well, about five years ago, my brother said to me, you know what, we should have a wrestling match, you and I. We're both fully grown now, so I won't have an advantage of being the bigger brother. And I went, yeah, right, okay, sure. So he said, next time I come down and see you, we'll have a wrestling match. Well, I think that his wife or my wife or someone had a word, and thank goodness for that, we didn't have a wrestling match uh, because it would have been embarrassing because he would just have won anyway because I'm the weaker brother. Although it occurred to me this morning that I am now about 20 kilos heavier than him. He's lost a lot of weight. I've put on a lot of weight. So if we were to wrestle today, I think I would just need to fall on top of him and then crush him. He wouldn't be able to lift me off. So maybe he's the weaker brother now. And Jeffrey, if you're listening to this, it's on, brother. Pick a day. We'll have a wrestling match. We'll see who the weaker brother is now or maybe who the fatter brother is now. Here in 1 Corinthians, weaker brothers will be an issue this morning. 1 Corinthians is a letter from a pastor to a church, and the challenges of the first century church of Corinth are similar to the challenges we face today. We can learn so much from this letter. The Apostle Paul has been calling the Corinthian church primarily to think about Jesus and what he has done, and to see all of their issues through that lens. And so we've had this, um, this verse as our prim- primary verse from 1 Corinthians. Let's read it together. For I resolved to know nothing while I was with you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. And the crucified Jesus is the theme running through the, uh, through the, through the Corinthian letter as Paul deals with the challenges of the day and always drawing it back to Jesus and what he has done and how Christian people should live in response to that. And in the section we're reading today and last week, Paul is dealing with the challenges for Christian people living in a pagan world. Now, not everyone knows what pagan is. Pagan just stands for people against goodness and niceness. Is that right? People against goodness and niceness. No, that's not right. Okay. Pagan just means people who aren't Christian. They don't believe in one God. They're not monotheists. They have all sorts of different beliefs. They believe in all sorts of different things. And that's the world we live in today. We're surrounded by people with different values, different practices, different ideas. And there's a great challenge for how Christians are called to live amongst the pagans in this world. The immediate challenge of the Corinthian church is eating meat that has been sacrificed to idols, to false gods, which is how most meat was butchered in the first century. We don't have this problem today. 
But we have similar challenges. How are Christians to deal with a whole host of different issues, from politics to culture, the family life? And what do we do when Christians disagree about how Christians are to behave? Last week, we spoke about the slogans of the Corinthians' teachers and Paul's responses, his unwillingness to lay down a set of rules or regulations or even to answer the question fully, instead encouraging the church to think, to know the truth, and to act in love. And he summed up that section with a remarkable statement about God. 1 Corinthians chapter 8 and verse 6, let's read it to us together. There is but one God, the Father, from whom all things came and for whom we live. And there is but one Lord, Jesus Christ, through whom all things came and through whom we live. This is a profoundly deep statement of essential belief that would have seemed like foolishness to the Gentiles and a stumbling block to the Jews. Not everyone in Paul's day understood these things fully. Paul, verse 7, Paul continues on. He says, not everyone possesses this knowledge. Some people are still so accustomed to idols that when they eat sacrificial food, they think of it as having been sacrificed to a god. And since their conscience is weak, it is defiled. By talking about knowledge, Paul is referring back to the slogans that the Corinthian teachers quoted last earlier in the passage that we talked about last week. The truth, the reality of the situation, that the idols the pagans worship are as nothing. There is only one God. And that the Corinthians, and indeed all Christians, are free to eat this pagan meat in good conscience. The problem is that not all Christians have this knowledge. And for some, their conscience will not allow them to eat it. They're still concerned about where it came from, how it was butchered, what was said and done in the religious ceremony that produced it. Paul sees the conscience like a sort of internal compass, telling each person what is right and wrong. But the human conscience, like a compass, is a sensitive instrument. And it can easily malfunction. It can get trapped in magnetic fields that pull it off course. It can allow itself to be set in a particular pattern, even though it's inappropriate. It often can't tell the difference between social custom, that is the way things are done in this town, in this country, in this school, in this business, this family, and actual issues of right and wrong. The problem is your conscience isn't always right. So the question is, can Christians eat meat that has been sacrificed to pagan idols? For Paul, the question, the answer is clearly and simply yes. He goes on in verse 8. But food does not bring us near to God. We're no worse if we do not eat and no better if we do. The meat, Paul says, is nothing. And Paul says that God, our Father, doesn't care if we eat it or not. We've been set free from worrying about pagan idols and their supposed powers and curses. All of that's been defeated and destroyed and wiped away by the completed work of Christ on the cross. When Jesus said, it is finished, 
He was talking about a whole host of things that had been destroyed and abolished. And so, can Christians eat meat that's been sacrificed to idols? Yes, because Jesus Christ and his death on the cross has set us free from the tyranny of fear. But if the question is, should Christians eat meat that's been sacrificed to pagan idols, the answer to that is, well, that depends. Or that's complicated. Or sometimes yes and sometimes no. This is a very frustrating answer to a seemingly very simple question. Because Paul goes on in verse 9 and says, Be careful, however, that the exercise of your rights does not become a stumbling block to the weak. Christians, says Paul, are free. They have rights. They can make choices. But they ought to make careful choices. Choices that are informed not just by personal rights and freedoms, but are influenced by the, by the consciences of the brothers and sisters around them. He goes on in verse 10, For if someone with a weak conscience sees you, with all your knowledge, eating in an idol's temple, won't that person be emboldened to eat what is sacrificed to idols? All this knowledge you've got is great, Paul says, but... Not everyone has that knowledge. And if someone with a weak conscience sees you, they may be led to sin. In our passage from last week, Paul points out that knowledge puffs up while love builds up. Can Christians eat meat sacrificed to pagan idols? Yes. Should they? Probably not. Why? Because they love their fellow believers. If a Christian exercises their rights and freedoms in Christ and in doing so emboldens another Christian to act against their own conscience, this can be very dangerous indeed. Verse 11. So this weak brother or sister for whom Christ died is destroyed by your knowledge. Verse 12. When you sin against them in this way and wound their weak conscience, you sin against Christ. You see, keeping a clear conscience before God is part of basic Christian living. If one Christian behaves in a way which shocks or distresses another or leads them to do something their own conscience is telling them is wrong, then they're taking away their responsibility and forcing them to disobey what they are convinced is God's will for them. At that point, the stronger Christian is actually making the weaker one sin. And at that point, we should all realize that something has gone badly wrong. This is all very complicated and difficult stuff. And at the same time, incredibly simple. You see, the person sitting next to you is incredibly valuable. It's true. The person sitting next to you is a very important person. They are invaluable and precious for at least two reasons. Number one, the person sitting next to you has been made in the image of God to reflect his nature and his character, 
his characteristics. So I want to encourage you, please, to turn to the person next to you and say, friend, you are made in the image of God. And if there's no one sitting next to you, turn to someone behind you or nearby. Turn to them and say, friend, you are made in the image of God. All right. That's reason number one why the person sitting next to you is important and valuable. I'm glad you got up and told Jared that. He needed to hear that this morning. Reason number two. The person sitting next to you has been bought, has been ransomed, has been redeemed by the shedding of the blood of Jesus Christ, the unique Son of God on the cross. And if something is worth what someone is willing to pay, then the person next to you is priceless because Jesus was willing to pay his life to rescue the person sitting in the chair next to you. And so this morning, turn to the person next to you. And this time we're not saying friend. Now we're saying brother or sister. Brother, sister, you were bought with the blood of Jesus Christ. Turn to the person next to you or near you and tell them, brother, sister, you were bought with the blood of Jesus Christ. And if that's true, If the person sitting next to you is valuable and precious to God because of how they were made and the price that was paid to buy them, to rescue them, to save them, then how should we treat them? If the person sitting next to you is priceless work of art that has been bought at an enormous price by the blood of Jesus, how should we treat them? How ought we love them? Because Jesus told his disciples, you should love one another. John chapter 13, Jesus says, let's read this together. A new command I give you, love one another. As I have loved you, so you must love one another. By this, everyone will know that you are my disciples if you love one another. We are called to love each other. The person sitting next to us, the person in the row behind, the person in this room who is sitting furthest from you in the same way that Jesus Christ has loved you. How has Jesus Christ shown his love for us? 1 Corinthians 2, 2. Let's read it again together. For I resolve to know nothing while I was with you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. Jesus died on a cross to show his love, to show God's love for each and every one of us. And he calls us to imitate him, to love our brothers and sisters in the same way. So Paul finishes off this little passage by saying these big words, Therefore, If what I eat causes my brother or sister to fall into sin, I will never eat meat again. So I will not cause them to fall. In comparison to what Jesus has done for us, it's no big thing to give up eating meat. Yes, you may love your steak, you may love your sausages, you may love your spaghetti bolognese, whatever it is you love. But if it calls another person to sin, we should be willing to give it up. Compared to what Jesus has done for us, that's no big deal. 
Paul is not setting up a new religion. He doesn't want a system of rules and regulations for the church in Corinth. He wants what Jesus wants. He wants the people of God to love each other. That means hard work. That means hard thinking. That means hard choices. Are there any questions this morning before I come to the first of my three conclusions? Are there any questions about anything I've said this morning that upsets, confused, or you'd like to know more about? Anyone want to tell me I'm wrong? Yes, up the back. I've gotten your name. <laughs> Go for it. How do we handle people who are easily offended? That's a really that's a good one. Yes. Jesus says we should love them the way that he loves us. And that means an extra touch of grace. That means an extra bit of love. These, yes, there's no easy or simple solutions to all of this. There are people who are easily offended and people who get easily upset, people who get angry about the smallest of things. And we need an extra filling of the Holy Spirit to be gracious and kind and loving to those people. We need to be able to have those conversations. Yes, two more good questions. I'm back here, sorry, not you. The man with the beard, not the lady, not the most beautiful lady in the room. The man with the beard. Okay, so um, I've forgotten your name too. I'm having a terrible shock at this morning. Ross. I still haven't remembered his name, and I know him very well. Mick and Ross. Sorry, Mick. Brain's gone blunt. Uh, Ross is asking the translation, does it say meat? Does it mean food? What is it actually saying here? And does it really matter? Uh, in the old English, in the old King James, they would have just said meat where food was the word. Yes, because they're meat and drink. They're just talking about food. In the old English, meat just meant food. Here, in this specific situation, he's talking about meat because that's the issue in the church happening. Is In the first century, we talked about this last week, in the first century, almost all the meat you buy in the city has been sacrificed to some sort of pagan idol. It's just the reality. I was thinking about it this week. You know, if you're going to kill an animal and you think that the bloodshed is going to do some good for you, you may as well do it in front of a pagan idol, you know. If you're going to kill the animal to eat it anyway, you may as well take it to the temple and kill it there because maybe you'll get some sort of blessing from some sort of thing. So that's why that almost always happens. Here he's talking about meat. Is he talking about more than meat? Absolutely, because he's laying down a principle of how Christians should live. They should be willing to give up all sorts of things to show love for others. Good question. I had one over here and then one for the most beautiful woman in the room. Yes. What is today's? Oh, good. Well, that solves the problem then. I'll take it from the most beautiful woman in the room then. What is, what's the question? What's the modern alternative? There are lots of things like this. Lots of questions about what we should and shouldn't do. Should we go and see that movie? Should we watch that show? Should we read that book? Should we X, Y, Z? Should we take part in the whatever training is happening at work? Should we wear that multicolored name badge around our neck that HR wants us to wear? even though I might not agree with everything that that multi-banded thing means to a whole bunch of people. These are tough questions. There are people who are giving up jobs and livelihoods and professions because they are convinced 
this is right and that is wrong. People making tough decisions. One of the, uh, a small example is this, is Harry Potter. Okay? I'm saying the name Harry Potter in church, please don't stone me. Some Christians are dead against Harry Potter and all that he represents and is. And other Christians see, actually, it's not that big a deal. And when we go places with our kids, now you're going to know my position on this, and when there are other Christians there, I said to my kids when we went to the national conference, guys, don't talk about Harry Potter at this conference because there will be children there from families for whom that's a really big deal. So just don't talk about it. And it came up, one of the kids was humming one of the songs and another little kid said, we're not allowed to hum that song in our house. And we said, just not, just is that a situation of weaker brothers and stronger brothers and which one is the weaker brother and which one's doing what's wrong and just, you know what, let's show love and grace and respect to other people. If it's going to stop my brother falling into sin, I will never watch Harry Potter again. For me, that's not a big deal. Other people, it might be a big deal. But if it comes to Lord of the Rings, oh, you'll take that from my cold, dead hands. And yet so many Christians are fine with Lord of the Rings. not okay with Harry Potter. And we could have an extra dose of love and we could talk about these things. Good questions this morning. But any number of issues that we deal with in our world, we just had Australia Day. Some Christians are okay with saluting the flag and marching in steps. And other Christians go, we should not be doing any of this stuff. Which is right, which is wrong. Should Christians serve in the military? Should Christians vote? These are not blanket issues. Christians disagree on these things. Should we, when we go to the courtroom, swear on the Bible, even though the Bible says not to swear on the Bible? Christians get into all sorts of trouble with these sorts of things because the world says you'll swear on this holy book and the Christian says the holy book says not to do that. All sorts of things. We live in a tricky, complicated world. We need an extra touch of grace. We need an extra touch of love. And by the way, we don't live in a Christian country, just in case you think you do. Probably 3% of the population are born again. Half of them are over 70, and we're in a big lot of trouble. Are there any other questions this morning? Am I a vegan? If, if Brother, if it'll stop you sinning, I'll become a vegan tomorrow. I hope it doesn't stop you sinning. <laughs> I think that would be very awkward. I do love mushrooms, so maybe I could do it. And maybe I'd lose the weight and then I'd lose the wrestling match. It'd be trouble. All right. My first conclusion. I've got three conclusions this morning. And if if you want to interrupt me for questions while we go, you're welcome to do that. The first conclusion is this. You know, there are those in the world who like to use the Bible to justify their political opinions. There are those who argue the Bible, Jesus even more than the Bible, and Paul even more than Jesus emphasizes individualism. The idea that we are, each of us alone, responsible for ourselves to God. That we must each one repent and believe. No one can do it for us. We must each take personal responsibility for our sin and our salvation. And that's true. And Paul definitely believed that each individual is an individual. The 
problem comes when these political actors stop reading the Bible, stop listening to Paul, once they've read the parts they like and ignore the parts they do not like. These political actors like the individual rights that Paul seems to champion, but they ignore utterly the parts where Paul talks about the responsibilities that individuals have towards other individuals and groups and the body of Christ and the world. And next week we will follow on this theme of rights versus responsibilities a bit further as Paul talks about his rights as an apostle of Jesus Christ, why he chooses not to use those rights all the time. That's conclusion number one. That's me having a go at libertarians. The second conclusion, there are those who say that the genius of Paul here is that he uses the word weak to describe the brother or sister who has the troubled conscience. The idea is that no one would stand up and say, yes, I'm the weaker brother in this situation. I'm the weaker sister. Please don't do what you're doing. It troubles my conscience. These people say that no one would be so bold or perhaps so pathetic to express their weakness publicly in order to restrict or limit the rights and actions of others. Perhaps they have a point. It is difficult in our culture to express weakness, to admit difficulties, to share vulnerabilities. But unless us weaker brothers and sisters speak up, unless the stronger brothers and sisters are willing to listen, we cannot learn from each other. We cannot love each other. We just become strangers who sit on a pew and nod at each other on the way in and the way out. That's not what the church is meant to be. That's not what Jesus gave his life for. My second conclusion. My third conclusion is this. Mark 1.15. Let's read it together. The time has come, he says. The kingdom of God has come near. Repent and believe the good news. These are the words of Jesus, telling people to repent and believe and be part of God's kingdom. And I often say, when I'm explaining it to children or even to adults, I say that repent means turning away from everything we know to be wrong. Because guess what? It's really hard to repent of things I don't know I'm doing wrong. Because repentance means a change of mind and of action. As we grow in our faith, as we become more and more like Jesus, we will find more and more things to repent of. Often the holiest people, the greatest saints, are those who are most aware of just how big a sinner they are. Dear friends, I would encourage you to take this opportunity today to ask the Holy Spirit to reveal or to remind you of something from which you need to repent, you need to change, something you need to give up on. Do that again tomorrow day after, the day after, and so on. You'll never be done with repentance. You'll never be done with repentance. And if you can't think of something you need to repent of, talk to someone who knows you really well and ask them 
if there's something that they can see in your life, you need to change. The song I've chosen to reflect on this morning is a beautiful old song. If on my soul a trace of sin remaineth, if on my hands a stain may yet be seen, if one dark thought a wearied mind retaineth, oh, wash me, Lord, till every part be clean, for I would live that men may see thyself in me. I would in faith ascend thy holy hill and with my thoughts in tune with thy divinity would learn how best to do thy holy will. It's a beautiful song. And as we sing it this morning, if the Lord is speaking to you and there is something in your heart that you know you need to give up, if your conscience is troubling you about something, if you've been led astray by one of those tough, weaker brothers, tough, stronger brothers, well, speak to the Lord about that. Ask him to forgive you. Maybe ask him to change your conscience. But if your conscience is unchanging, don't stain it for the sake of impressing the person in the pew next to you. Let's pray. Father God, this morning we thank you for your words, your scriptures that say difficult and tough things to us. Father God, it would have been so easy for Paul just to lay down a rule and say, fine, go and eat the meat. Father God, I thank you that through your Holy Spirit you inspired him to ask the real underlying questions of what's going on in the heart of our brothers and sisters. Father God, I pray that you would open our ears and eyes to see those around us, see them as they truly are of incredible value to you. Help us to love them as you love us. Father God, I pray for our stronger brothers, those who are sure that what they're doing is right and fine and good. Father God, I pray that you would speak to our stronger brothers and sisters and help them to open their eyes to see those around who are struggling, those who are challenged, those with difficulties, those who are dealing with trauma and issues from their past. Father God, give our stronger brothers and sisters grace patience and love and a willingness to give up their freedoms for the good of others. And Father God, I pray for our weaker brothers and sisters as well. that They would learn to speak up. They would learn to say, hang on a minute, I'm not sure about this or I need help or I'm struggling with this issue. Father God, give our weaker brothers and sisters courage express what's in their hearts and their conscience. Father God, bind us all together in love. Help us to love one another as Jesus has loved us, whether our brother or sister be strong or weak. Help us to show your love to them. And all of this we pray in the precious and powerful name of Jesus Christ, the one who loves all of his weaker brothers. Sisters. In his name we pray. Amen. Amen.